So welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I'm Andrew Gutman, Brearley Dad, accidental education activist, co-founder of the Institute for Liberal Values and founder of Speak Up for Education, along with my co-host, Bethany Mandel. You want to give your bio? Yeah. So my name is Bethany Mandel. I am a columnist for Deseret News. Uh, editor and board member of a new children's book series called Heroes of Liberty. If you want to pick some up for your Christmas gifts, please do heroesofliberty.com. And I'm also a mom of five. My oldest is eight. My youngest is a little baby. And we homeschool. I actually have a quick question because we haven't talked about Heroes of Liberty before. Yeah. What's the age range for that? I know there are these these, these who biographies that that my daughter used to have when she was little. I know this is is somewhat similar, but politically maybe different. You want to tell us a little bit? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you very much. I think good for ages between like six and 12 and their political biographies. They're beautifully illustrated. American? Yeah. All American? Uh, Not all American. So future future, um, sort of additions are going to be Margaret Thatcher and Winston Churchill. Um, So those are sort of two people that are on our docket for now. Um, And the plan is, so we have three that are available right now. It's a bundle set. Thomas Sowell, Ronald Reagan, and Amy Coney Barrett are available right now. And um, we are soon releasing in 2022. We'll plan to release one a month um, with a subscription plan and all that. It's like being formulated, but um, future books will be, again, I mentioned Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, uh, John Wayne, Mark Twain, Rush Limbaugh. Um, and so there's uh, there's a political bend for sure. Obviously, you can tell in the list of names, but it's not indoctrination. And that's something that I think uh, is really important. Um, so I personally edited Rush Limbaugh. And I think that for some people, the Rush Limbaugh name is the one that sort of is like, oh, I don't I don't like that. Right. Um, but I edited it so I can sort of attest like there's nothing controversial. There's nothing um, there's nothing that you would feel uncomfortable with. Uh, one of the things that I talk to a lot of mental health professionals who have expertise in, in pediatric mental health. And the thing that I hear most often is kids are afraid of speaking their mind mm-hmm. and uh, it's leading to a lot of anxiety. It's leading to a lot of depression. It's, it's, it's a really big problem. And the Limbaugh book sort of teaches kids that like he became really successful and really beloved because he spoke his mind and it's a good yeah. thing to speak your mind. And so, um, and it's also just a lot of, a lot of the stories are, you know, he, he built himself up by his bootstraps and, and uh, the meritocracy exists and um, he is proof and Tom Sowell is proof. And um, so, so there's the idea that there are morals to all of these biographies. Um, I, I think we try to. Yeah. So the sort of idea behind um behind Rush Limbaugh is sort of speaking your mind. And the idea behind Amy Coney Barrett is you can be a successful professional woman and also a mother and also a mother of a large family. Um, The story of Thomas Sowell is you shouldn't judge someone by their skin color and that you can be successful no matter what. Um, and that that sort of actually is a really good segue to our conversation today with with Erica Sanzi, um, which I'll let you introduce in a minute. But um, but if anyway, if anyone is interested in in picking up these books, I obviously like I'm a board member, edit them, I love them, the illustrations are beautiful. Uh, if you go to heroesofliberty.com. Um, and speaking of which, I think I could probably get our listeners a discount code. I'm excited about that. I'm yeah. curious how you, we'll talk about this at another time. I'm curious how you, how you picked the type, you know, who, who you're going to buy from. I'm curious, you're going to have Donald Trump. So that's a, that's a debate. So um, I don't know if there's been a decision about Trump so far. Um, There's like, there's things that are beyond my pay grade. Um, But for now, I mean, some, I think it's a combination of, you know, people who honestly, I mean, we're capitalists, like do who we think will sell well. And Thomas Sowell is selling very well. Really? Um, of the three, he is by far the most popular. Really? Um, yeah. People are I didn't really realize pumped. so many people really knew him. So that's the I'm, thing. That's the thing. And and who do we want kids to know? I want yeah. my kids to know Thomas Sowell. Absolutely. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Um, but for like John Wayne and Mark Twain, it's a little bit of a response to cancel culture because they've, you know, been on the chopping block. And so the question is, um, you know, are these people worth teaching our kids about? And the answer is yes. And so we're like, thank you very much to the mob. And we will, we'll profile these people. And some of them, it's just like with Tom Sowell, like we thought he would sell well and we were right. 
Um, and some of them, it's just like, you know, these are necessary ground, you know, ground people that are, they should absolutely have a, an understanding and love of. So Reagan is one of them and Alexander Hamilton is another one that we're doing. Um, and the illustrator on that is unbelievable. Like he should be doing fine art instead of illustrating children's books, but I'm never going to tell him that so he can keep on illustrating our children's books. Um, so yeah, thank you for asking. I, it's yeah, like no, terrific. That's really, about. that's, that's really exciting. Um, so today's episode, we've got a terrific guest who we both know. Her name is Erica Sanzi. She is a former teacher, education activist, and director of outreach for Parents Defending Education. Um, I, I think I had the opportunity to meet her in person the first time a few months ago at a conference for uh, parents and activists up in Boston organized by an organization called Parents Unite. And we kind of hit it off and had some very long conversations over over drinks or dinner. Um, and we've kept in touch ever since. Bethany, you know her also? I bit? do, but not, I, I don't, I don't, I can't. It's funny because when we were doing show prep, I was like, we'll introduce her and say how we know her. And then I it was like, wait a second, I don't actually know the answer to that question myself. But it was funny because I chatted with her on the phone a couple nights ago about an unrelated project. Well, all, sort of related, sort of not related to this podcast, but related to this whole sphere of what we're talking about. And she said she first heard of me um, because uh, I had my third baby in, the, in my husband's car. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, actually. yeah. Okay. So we, so my third, my third baby, he, we call. You were on the way to the hospital. Yeah. You just didn't make it, or yeah, okay. yeah. So okay. it, if you see him mentioned on Twitter, we call him Ultima because we don't use our kids' real names wow. online. Wow. So he was born in a Nissan Altima. That's why we call him Ultima. And he behaves as a child would who was born on the side of the highway on a gravel driveway of an auto body shop in New Jersey. That, that is his personality, like encapsulated. He was, you know, that is who he is. Um, so it was funny because that's, that's how she came to know me. And I'm not sure I can answer the question of when I came to know her. I think that, um, I think like a lot of parents, I became much more energized about education in the, in the COVID world. Yeah. Um, and not just because of COVID, but sort of it, COVID is a symptom and not a disease. I think a lot of how we've responded to COVID is uh, very illustrative, illustrative of how we think about a lot of the world. And so during COVID, we learned that children are literally society's last priority yes. and um, schools don't matter and kids don't matter. And my, my husband went to a concert um, earlier this week and I'm I don't begrudge him fun I want him to have fun I want him to have you know a life he went to a Wu-Tang concert I thought he was kidding until the day of the concert he all week was like I'm going to a Wu-Tang concert I'm like oh that's funny I, I don't know why this is like a joke that you keep on telling but sure yeah okay you're going to a Wu-Tang concert and then the morning of he's like okay so I'm going to take an Uber uh to to work so that it's easy to go to the concert tonight and I was like Oh wait, was that a? Well, that wasn't a joke. Right, you're, right. You're going to a Wu-Tang concert. Right. My Orthodox Jewish husband. The answer was yes. And apparently, the bouncer wished him a happy Hanukkah. Um, God bless America. So, um, so he was posting pictures of the concert. People packed in, and he told me he's like, you know, everyone walked in with a mask on because in Montgomery County, in Maryland, where we live, there is a mask mandate. Did the masks stay on? He said no. Right. And so by the time he, the final, like the, the real act was on stage, very few people were wearing masks. Everyone was packed in and singing. It's like, it's a super spreader event. And, um, and I tweeted his picture, which was like, I didn't mean, I obviously wasn't trying to drag my own husband, but I tweeted his picture and I said, tomorrow morning in the same county, in the same city, there will be children right. sitting in masks and yeah. eating outside in the cold. This yep. is like, this is, this is perfectly encapsulates our society. The fact that my husband can go to a Wu-Tang concert until midnight. And then the next morning, it's like, we live in two different dimensions. Um, so anyway, so Erica Sansi. So I sort I think I became familiar with her sort of in a post COVID world of like, just watching an absolute abject horror as public education in this, in this country was just steamrolled and destroyed. Um, and a lot of people ask me like, why do you care so much? Because you homeschool. homeschool. Yeah. Right. And the answer is, um, and I will just keep on saying it over and over because I was a public school kid and I was the daughter of a single mom. And I know what would have happened to me had I been 
a kid during this time. And it would have been destructive completely and utterly just, I, I would, my future and my prospects would have been annihilated. So I care. It is devastating what we're doing to kids. Yes. No, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a human rights um, catastrophe and it's, I, there, there's no level of hyperbole that is actually hyperbole. Like this is, uh, this is a human rights violation. There was a horrifying story, and I think the Daily Mail yesterday. Um, we're recording this a, like a week early, so it's the it's the first week of of December. And honestly, I'm telling our readers like, don't read it. I'm just do yourself a favor and don't do what I did and read the whole story because I couldn't sleep. Um, and it's a story about a six year old kid in England who um, his family were all sounding the alarm. There's he is being he is being abused. He is being brutalized. He is being starved. And every single member of his family were were sort of sounding the alarm. And there weren't eyes on him because he didn't have mandated reporters because he wasn't in school. And the Child Protective Services were not making house calls because of COVID. And so as a result, the six-year-old child was um, beaten to death by his stepmother. And, um, and the, the, the warning signs, like, it's not like those sort of interviews that you see, like, oh, I had no idea this was such a surprise. Like, there, there was none of that in this story. There was warning alarm after red flag, after red flag, after red flag. And they were just ignored because of COVID. And, um, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply horrified as someone who, I mean, I have five children. I obviously like children. I love children. And I'm just distraught at what's happening yeah. to them. And- and that's why, and that's why we're thankful for people like Erica Sands yeah. who are on the front lines of this, yeah. you know, fighting as much as they can. And this movement is growing clearly, but yep. there's so much work to do to fight for our kids. Because yeah. I don't see from the I don't see the exit ramp from the no. COVID stuff. No, no, there is not. And and so that's that's sort of um, I think that it became much more on my radar. Um, and I think that that's the case for a lot of people and probably a lot of our listeners that this became an animating issue um, that you know. I, we don't get paid to do this podcast. <laughs> like, we do it because we care, and um, and I mean that's that's everything. So, um, without further ado, I think we should sort of um, jump into our conversation with Erica, and um, and chat with her about all the work that she's doing with Parents Defending Ed. We're very lucky today to have as a guest, Erica Sanzi. Uh, Erica is one of my favorite people in the parents movement. Uh, Erica is a former educator, mother of three boys, and uh, educational activist and director of outreach for Parents Defending Education. For those of you that don't know Parents Defending Education, uh, PDE is one of the leaders, if not really the leaders in making this uh, parents' movement, really a national movement. So, Erica, thank you very much for joining us today on Take Back Our Schools. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. You you were an educator. Now you're for a while, right? Now you're an activist. Tell us, you know, a little bit about how that transition happened and what sort of brought you to this activism. Because you've been in this for a lot longer than most of us here. So, you know, what what made that transition for you? Sure. So I um, I worked as a teacher and actually was in um, the teachers union in Massachusetts and also California. Um, and so I worked as a teacher at the high school level for seven years. And then I had my first son. So I finished teaching on a Friday, had him on a Monday and never went back for seven years. So I was home um, for seven years and had two more boys. So then was the mother of three when I headed back to schools. Um, and then I did uh, more work as a high school teacher and also as a dean of students, both at the high school and middle school level. Um, but also in 2010, around the time that I was getting close to going back to work, um, I began to look at student achievement data in my own district. We hadn't really looked at school data before we moved here. It was sort of more like we need to relocate back to the East Coast, where is a place that we could afford a house and also be relatively close to our parents and also would make sense for my husband's job. And so where we ended up moving, um, ended up having much poorer educational outcomes than I had expected simply because I had been very spoiled by really, really strong public schools growing up and had made the very probably common mistake of thinking that most schools and most districts were pretty much like that. 
And so I began paying close attention to school committee meetings and quickly discovered that uh, the administration of my own district where I didn't even have a child yet, he was going into kindergarten, um, were not at all responsive to the public. And I mean, really not responsive, like simple questions where they would say, this is our proposal. And we would say, okay, well, who came up with this proposal? And they would say the leadership team. And I would say, well, could you just tell us who's on the leadership team? Right. And you couldn't get an answer to basic questions. So um, that interest in our school and in student outcomes and what I obviously began to also see as you know massive disparities in outcomes, I decided to run for a school committee seat, which we call our school boards school committees. Um, I decided to run for my school committee when I had a one, three and five year old, which looking back, I sort of am amazed that my, we even survived that time. Um, and I, what I really wanted to do in running was I wanted to um, get rid of our superintendent. I wanted to um, pass full day kindergarten and I wanted to bring like a focus on student outcomes, mostly because what I had discovered was that pretty much all of what I was pushing for wouldn't cost a, a penny. We were just talking like higher expectations, like the belief that it's important to cut the grass at a school if you want children and families to believe that you actually care about education. And so I became sort of this kind of like suddenly a real big loudmouth on the topic of education in my community. And then when I won for school committee, it was a townwide seat. I think I won by like 43 votes out of 16,000 cast or something. So it was really, it went to a recount, like it was really close. Oh, wow. um, I was also a huge proponent of school choice. So now you had like a person, former teachers union member sitting on a school committee who is publicly speaking out in favor of charter schools, including the one that is opening and taking students from our district. So I guess that's kind of paints the, I guess that kind of paints the picture of the background. Were you controversial? Yes. In, within the school committee? I mean, did you get a lot of pushback back then? Uh, yep, I got a lot of pushback, um, partly because I was a Massachusetts transplant to Rhode Island. And uh, so carpetbagger. a lot of, and people often make this, you know, Rhode Island's often called the, the redheaded stepchild of Massachusetts, right? So they do everything better, even though I quite literally live five minutes from Massachusetts. I shop at the Target in Massachusetts multiple times a week. Um, and so I was bringing sort of that comparing how they were doing and pointing out that there was no reason why we couldn't also raise our expectations and expect more of our students in school and expect more of our, you know, educational system, et cetera. So that was controversial because it was like, well, if you like it so much, why don't you go back there? Right. I heard that a lot. Um, the other thing was, as you guys probably know, and a lot of listeners will know, anybody who supports charter schools or school choice is automatically controversial in the education conversation. And Rhode Island is a place where the unions are incredibly powerful. I mean, I don't want to say they own the state house, but it, they own a lot of the people in the state house. Um, and so that again, also made me automatically controversial. Um, the other thing is a lot of people don't like to talk about student outcomes. They don't want to hear about reading proficiency and math proficiency because they are believers that, you know, either the tests don't tell you anything or the tests, um, you know, are evil or something like that. So I would say, uh, yeah, I, I, I would say that I stirred the pot sort of a lot. So how long were you on the school board, school committee for? I only did one term, two okay. years. Um, was it successful? Yeah. We were able to accomplish anything that you had set out to do? It was successful. Um, luckily, there was so much pressure coming that even before the election, the superintendent ended up getting ousted, but I got to be part of bringing in the next one. So that was great. Um, I had to work for a very short period of time with the outgoing one. She absolutely loathed me. Like every time she spoke to me during the, that limited amount of time, it was just like hate coming from her eyeballs. Um, so we brought on a new superintendent. We passed full day kindergarten. We had for the, for the first time ever, we had a subcommittee that was literally had the word achievement in the name. And so I do feel like we were able to really change the conversation. And while I was not aligned with some of the other members on the charter and school choice piece, 
we were found a way to really work together um, on other issues of importance that I think made a really dramatic difference for kids. And we ended up seeing real big um, improvements in our student outcomes. So the sort of the topic of our podcast is take back our schools. And I think that you are really sort of an instructive person of someone who achieved things. Something that I hear from a lot of people who are considering running for for school board in their district is I maybe will win. I don't know. But if I do win, it's going to be me versus six other people. And like, what am I going to accomplish? So it sort of sounds like that was the position you were in, like you versus six people, or was there, were you able to sort of affect change what, what are your thoughts on like how you work together with people? Like, were you aligned with everybody or was it you versus everyone? It definitely was not me versus everyone. And I think that that did make a huge difference. Um, there was somebody who had been in local politics for a long time who had was also on the committee and became a huge like support to me in encouraging me to run and then in helping with my campaign and I'm not sure that without his support and his backing, I'm not sure because he also then became the chair. So now it was like the chair of the committee was somebody that had worked really hard to get me elected, including like I ran for a seat where there were two people that would win. It was an at-large seat. And so he did not support one of the incumbents and he outwardly supported me. And so I think that that was really helpful. I'm trying to imagine right now if I had been like a lone voice where nobody else wanted to go in that direction. Whereas like I had a school cha- a, a school committee chair who had been supporting me because he wanted to shift the focus to achievement as well. He was like, uh, uh, he was horrified at the outcomes in math, especially because he was kind of a math guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also, I think, really concerned. We have a quite a socioeconomically diverse community. And so essentially you have the the lowest number of free reduced lunch students in the North. And as you go South, you get more and more and more until the, the, the school that was the, well, I'll just give you an example. So like the northernmost elementary school has had about 5% of kids receiving free reduced lunch. And the southernmost elementary school had 63%. It's like a huge change. Wow, that's a huge difference. Yeah, and the achievement gaps were massive. And they they mirrored that as well? A hundred percent. And so, and we also had two elementary schools in our town that under No Child Left Behind became those schools where like the, their rating was low enough that parents could opt out of those schools if they wanted to. I forget what the technical term for that was. So that was also an issue because those two schools were also like our southernmost elementary schools. And then we had two middle, we have two middle schools that I think the town made a mistake by districting those, you know, one is in the North and one serves the South. So you again have like massive income discrepancy and also achievement gaps between those schools. Personally, if anyone had asked me, which they wouldn't have, I would have liked the idea of districting those middle schools East to West so that you didn't have that dramatic difference in income. But but anyway, so there were there were problems and I had a chair that saw the problems because he's a numbers guy and he looked at the numbers and he wanted to make he wanted that data to improve. Um, And I do feel like I don't know that I could have had any success if I was by myself, although on the other hand, what I would say is part of the reason we had the success was because of all the rabble rousing that other people like me were doing. I mean, I was one of the loudest ones for sure. I might, maybe I was the loudest one, but there were other voices and there was sort of a coalition. Um, I think that coalitions often form when people really hate their superintendent. That you, were, you in tra- were you leading this coalition or just kind of formed by itself? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say that I was leading it. Um, the only reason that maybe I seemed like the leader was because I was the only one that stepped up to run. Mm-hmm. So then it was like suddenly everybody kind of rallied around me running. And the truth is, like people have what's that? What they talk about interest convergence, right? Like a lot of the people that were my biggest supporters for that run, like now can't stand. They have they're against everything I say. So you know, it was like they they they, they wanted me to help get rid of that superintendent. They had issues with the with the local school district. And, you know, and this was always bigger for me, I think, than just my local district. Sorry, guys, I've got a dog barking in the background. Um, And so um, I think that 
I wanted this to be a much bigger conversation and other people that supported me were not up for that at all. In that sense, I was the leader, but I don't have a skill set really to like build a coalition. So I'm not sure that I would have called myself um, that. Was there anything that was like really eye-opening being on a school committee, being on a school board that you, you know, have coming from being a teacher being in the teachers union, was there anything that like was really, you know, you didn't realize until you were on the school board and school committee? Yeah. One of them is that the unions will pretty much protect anybody. I sat in executive sessions um, where it became clear to me that they would go to the mat for the worst of the worst. And, um, and that wasn't the case in one of the districts I had worked in in Massachusetts, interestingly enough, because people always say, you know, the unions always let people go based on seniority. And, and the truth is, in the late 80s, when I was a student, um, my school district actually laid people off based on performance. Mm-hmm. So it's not that even though it was a, a unionized district, now you still had to be tenured, but like there was huge consternation over that. And I remember admiring that even like as a high school student. But then when I was on the committee, everything was seniority based here. Um, And the union officials would come into these executive session meetings, which, of course, the public had no access to. And they would do anything to protect the jobs of the most incompetent and also of people who had really done egregious things. So what I often tell people when they, you know, they kind of try to doubt what I'm saying. And I'm like, listen, I'm like, or they, they'll say, you're such a union basher. And I'm like, listen, I was in them twice, two of them. And I can't unsee what I saw in those executive sessions. And I guarantee what I saw wasn't even nearly as bad as what is happening in a lot of other school systems, particularly when I think of those big city school systems that have tons of members and the unions are so powerful, like union officials are going to the mat to protect the worst of the worst. Can you give an example just so people can get a sense of like, this is what they went to the mattresses for? Definitely teachers where there were years and years of documented complaints of verbal abuse of students. They would protect teachers where there were years and years of documented evidence that they were not instructing at all, really, in their subject, that kids were sort of doing nothing or um, that the, just the, the academic progress just wasn't there. Kind of like the, I mean, I don't, if you had a visual of someone just kind of sitting at their desk and like reading the paper and then like. I do have kids. a visual because I went to public school. And, and the truth is, I had really never seen anything like that. So, again, I came from a really, really well-regarded public school district, a district that now, I mean, nobody can afford to buy a house there. But when I grew up there, it was a place that was, you know, had very wealthy sections and there were working class people there. And my neighbors were firemen and policemen and the school system was really strong. So like I had no experience of 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 this laziness that I was suddenly seeing. Educator sexual abuse is a huge problem and issue that nobody wants to talk about. It's something I've spent a lot of time, you know, learning a lot about and fighting to get a law passed in my own state. And for four years running, I have failed to be successful at that. But um, so I know there are much worse things happening that unions are protecting. I didn't personally see, see those. But what I did see, you know, told me enough about what I needed to know that if, if you had a pulse, they were going to defend you. Right. And would they let the teachers continue to teach? Or I'm like New York City, we have the rubber rooms where they mm-hmm. put bad teachers, they won't fire them, you know, with something like that, or they would just, you know, keep them in the classrooms? That's a good question. One of the cases I remember was that the person had been out, but was collecting their full paycheck and their full benefits. And then um, the next year, when the district wanted to get rid of them, instead of her uh, receiving her letter by a certain date, it had been postmarked something about that. And so she was able to get another full year of pay and not come to work because the postmark wasn't dated the right way. So that's another thing I saw a lot of like constantly looking for these little tiny procedural mistakes that they would find. And that would end up costing the district, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. It just, it's just not a system that is designed to put kids first. And the people working within the system aren't to blame for that, right? They're rank and file teachers that are doing incredible work for kids, working their tails off and actually are very upset by a lot of the things that their unions do. 
So I do think it's important to draw the distinction between what are union officials and unions doing versus what are the rank and file teachers doing and thinking? So if this is a question I've always wondered, so maybe you can shed some light on it. I mean, if what you're saying is right, that a lot of teachers are not happy with the unions, why are the unions so powerful? You know, I know, I know, I don't know if in every state teachers have, you know, have to contribute to the unions or not, or if it's voluntary or if they feel like if they don't do it, uh, you know, they'll get in trouble in some way. But, you know, why isn't there more pushback from teachers against the teachers unions? Well, there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, Number one is that this has changed, but for a long time, you had to be part of the union. You didn't have a choice. When I was uh, in, in 1998, I didn't want to become part of the union um, and was told that I either needed to pay dues to the union or had to pay that exact same amount to a charity, but that I could not, you couldn't just like not be part of the union. Um, And granted the Supreme court case that passed recently, the Janus case now allows teachers more freedom to leave their unions. But number one, the, the average teacher, if you walk up to them at like a school player basketball game has not heard of the Janus case. Right. And I also think that it's a little bit intimidating. Like, I think that the thought of like being different, pulling out of something, you know, what does that mean? You know, is my union not going to go to bat for me if something happens because I've been like openly critical. So I haven't had any conversations really about this with many teachers. I probably should do that, but I just think it's the kind of thing where like, this is how I've always done it. This is how it's already set up. I also think that um, most of it is like you're automatically opted into things. So you have, you'd have to opt out. And also right. I want, if I'm not mistaken, the opt out window is short and not well publicized. So they don't make it easy. So they don't make it easy. Right. Um, and I think that there are things, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like I always have to be devil's advocate on this. If I had been, when I was a teacher, if I had been accused of something I didn't do, the union would have been the ones there, right. To, to defend me. And clearly a teacher needs that. So then, so then I would say to myself, so then if you're not in it, like, what do you do in that situation? If that happens to you and you have left and, and, and I don't totally know the answer. What I do know is that the current system is totally broken. I feel like the, uh, and I feel like the teachers unions, their job is to protect their members, the adults, and get the most they can for their members, adults. And that's going to often be at the expense of kids. And everybody knows that, even though like they don't want to say it, but, but, but they know that like they just, I mean, it sounds wrong to say that Randy Weingarten doesn't care about kids, but I kind of think when push comes to shove, she doesn't care about kids. Cause she's yeah. like, you, you can only have one type, top priority. And if it's parents, yeah. if it's teachers, then it's not kids. Right. So it's like, she's paid a half a million dollars to put adults first, that is her job. Right. So let's let's bring us to today and your activism today. I mean, clearly there's a lot more pushback from parents now. I'm curious, something you said a little while ago was that you've been, a, a lot of the people that supported you then have abandoned you now. So, you know, what's different now? You know, where is your activism shifted now and, and why have those parents, you know, abandoned what you're advocating for? Um, oh God, it's like, it's actually hard when you think back, right? Let's like when you have so many people abandoning for different reasons, it's actually hard to keep track of like, but uh well, what shifted for you? I mean, has anything shifted for you or you think you're advocating for the same things and they've shifted? Is it them or is it you? Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both. If somebody thinks this woman's gonna get rid of the superintendent, I hate, and then that person, you know, helps to do that but also testifies all over the state on behalf of charter schools. And you're sort of like, I don't even like charter schools, you know, wait, she, now she's supporting schools that are, that if people choose them, the dollars are going to flow there and they're going to leave my district. Like I didn't want her to do that. So I think that's part of it. Um, I think the fact that I've been like a huge um, proponent of measuring outcomes Mm -hmm. Right. That means I automatically lose the people that are like very opposed to testing or feel like kids are already, you know, I I never really understand this because I've never seen this in my own children's schools, but I never want to dismiss the fact that this could be true for someone else. Right. But like people will be like, oh, my God, schools today, it's like kill and drill. You know, all they do is test prep. And like, 
I have never witnessed that as a mother of three kids who have attended district schools, charter schools, and parochial school. So whatever this dystopia is that the parents are describing that leads them to think that we should stop testing kids to make sure they know how to read. Like, I don't know what they're talking about, but it is obviously possible that there are places that are so freaked out about their terrible test scores that maybe they are putting kids through arduous test prep. And so in which case that would inform how they feel about it. So, but certainly a lot of the anti-test people have always had a problem with me. Are those, are those all parents or are there are teachers that are very anti-test partially, you know, either because they don't want to do that or because they feel that they are that being measured? Um, it's definitely both, but I think some of the, I feel like the pushback I'm thinking of has come more from parents on Facebook groups and things like that, but no, it's definitely both. Um, and then, you know, I was sort of a proponent of teacher evaluation to give you an example. When I, when I was teaching again in a district that I would argue put kids first more than a lot of other ones, I had, you know, I got observed, my teaching got observed every year. We'd have unannounced observations. We'd have announced observations. I come to Rhode Island, I find out in the contract that teachers aren't being observed at all. They're not being observed at all during an entire school year. And if a, an administrator or somebody does pop into a classroom and see something, like the contract language said that like it could never, no matter what they see, like it can't become any part of like an evaluation. So I'm like, wait a second. Oh, I'm sorry. And when I was teaching, you had to do a demo lesson okay. to get hired. Like part of the hiring process was they watched you teach. I moved to Rhode Island in 2005. No one, I, I'm talking about demo lessons for hiring. They're looking at me like I have three heads. They, no one, they weren't doing that. Nobody, so people, it was like, oh, you grew, oh, look, you graduated from Rhode Island College, like 70% of the teachers in our state. Uh, and you have a pulse. Yep, we'll take you. And, and the truth is, there are tremendous teachers coming out of that program, but there are also pitiful teachers coming out of that program. And it didn't matter because it was, there was no, you know, they just weren't, well, they just weren't making sure that they were bringing in good people. And then the tenure was a rubber stamp. So all of a sudden you discovered that, oh, great. Now, like now we're stuck. So that's where I would say a lot of people um, have parted ways with me. I can't really think of other reasons. I'm sure they would have a long list now we have all these new problems, right? And so I, I honestly feel like the conversation about like, you know, student achievement in charter schools, like I wish that's what we were talking about now. So what are we talking about now? We've got this parents movement, right? Some of it's COVID restrictions, school closures, critical race theory, gender sexuality, trans stuff. So this is completely exploded right in the last year let's say we saw the elections in Virginia that you know what parents had an enormous effect and across the country so you know what where where do you feel like we are now I mean was this a surprise to you you think a lot of it is COVID or not it's hard to describe where we are because there's so many different things happening at once um, but we're dealing with what I would call an ideological capture of the schools and um and I think part of it is that there were warnings this was happening. And the people that were warning all of us were made out to sound crazy and hysterical. And I will confess that I never, ever imagined that it could be as bad as it is. Um, but essentially, I think what's happening is the there's an orthodoxy that has seeped into the public school system. Well, and the private school system actually where free exchange of ideas has been obliterated where um, there's a, almost like a dogma has taken hold. And so if you do not subscribe to a certain set of beliefs, it's not only that they don't appreciate you asking questions or dissenting, but it's that they will accuse you of causing harm to others, creating an unsafe space. And so it's almost like educational institutions 
what their what their purpose is has been flipped on its head because yeah. their purpose is the free exchange of ideas and wrestling with ideas. And like I used to say, you know, it's it's giving information to students to grapple with and then decide where they land. So, you know, students could read the same exact stuff and then they're asked, okay, so what do you think? Where do you land? And often, you know, half would think one thing and half would think the other, they'd make their most compelling case. And that is just disappearing at such a fast rate. And what's sort of incredible about it is that it's disappearing at the fastest rate in the schools that used to be the best at teaching students to come up with a thesis statement and back it up with evidence. Yeah. And instead now we almost see like they've become anti-evidence yeah. if it flies in the face of this orthodoxy that they seem to be in many ways caving to under pressure um, from, I think they think marginalized group pressuring me to go along with X. So I have an obligation now to go along with X, even if it is riddled with factual inaccuracies and and absolutely not good for students. And this is, and, and I'm speaking sort of in generality. So, I mean, I should probably get a little bit more clear, but like I'm talking about issues around race, issues around gender, issues around sexual orientation, religion, um, all of these, these topics have become almost like bludgeons used on children and I'm not just talking about like a high school classroom, you know, where like the kid rolls his eyes because his teacher sounds crazy every day. But we're talking about the youngest students right. in um, in the schools. And so you so that's happening. And then you add to that closed schools. Um, kids in masks. Parents being called hideous names by school officials because they just want their kids schools to open. Parents being called hideous names because they have concerns over the fact that their son got off the bus and said, daddy, today my teacher told me that the fact that I have a penis doesn't mean I'm a boy, right? So you take all of these factors and we have like, on the one hand, an educational crisis, which is like horrifying. And on the other hand, an incredible parent movement that is like totally exhilarating. So that's my last and final question for you, Erica. So on that exhilarating parent movement, so you are the director of outreach for parents defending education. Tell me about, so we, we've outlined a lot of the problems. What are you doing to be part of the solution and tell me more about parents defending education? Okay, so what are, we're doing actually a lot of different things. So it's, um, but essentially parents defending education came out of the concern you know, of our founder, Nicole Neely, that um, that children in schools were being treated differently based on their immutable characteristics. And I think that one case that really sort of I catalyzed this organization is that there was a superintendent in Illinois that had put in writing that they were gonna make their decisions of which students could come back to school in person and which had to stay remote based on the color of their skin. So it didn't matter, like if, if you were a struggling reader, but you were white, you weren't coming back. But if you were an A plus student and you were black, you were coming back. Wow. Now, now he ultimately had to walk that back because it's obviously against the law. <laughs> but I think the fact that a, a, a superintendent would even think of doing that, let alone put it in writing as a planned policy, was all the proof that sh that that Nikki needed that parents were going to need a lot of help. And so um, we have like three sort of verticals on our website, expose, empower and engage. And that's basically what we do. So I work a lot in the expose area because we are just shining sunlight on what is happening in school districts. So we have a, a, a portal, parents or teachers or whoever can send us things. They send us assignments, documents, emails, um, links, screenshots, and of things that they consider to be concerning. And then we vet them. So if 
you know, if we really do feel like this assignment is inappropriate, discriminatory, concerning, you know, that it, it peddles in race essentialism, gender essentialism, gender ideology, critical race theory, if it, if it involves, you know, diversity consultants making lots of money off the district, whatever it is. Um, that's kind of what I do. So I'm kind of in charge of going through all of that. And I should say just for people listening, like we don't do anything related to COVID. So like we don't do anything related to mask policies. So even though, you know, I may share a parent's concerns or when we feel terrible for what they're dealing with, like that's not something that we can help with. Um, so that's part of it. We have a map on our website. It's called our indoctrination map. And so people can look to see where, where have um, situations arisen in, in different cities and states. And, um, and of course, it's just a tip of the iceberg, but we have, we have, we have lots of stuff up there. The um, empowering stuff is making sure that parents know their rights. And so we have a lot of information about what are your rights as a public school parent? What are your rights as a private school parent? And as Andrew knows all too well, like- There are none. Private school parents basically relinquish all of their rights when they sign that contract, which is terrible and and awful. But the point is the way that, you know, the, the strategies are not going to be the same if you're dealing with private schools simply because you don't have those same um, laws to back you up. Whereas in public school, a lot of what we're seeing actually violates the law. So parents have more leverage in that sense. Um, and, and, we've, and we also work to ensure that parents, you know, do they know how to file public records requests? Um, do they know how to, I mean, even like as easy as like writing a letter to the editor, like our goal is to help parents push back on their own and to, and we acknowledge the fact that, you know, the way that a, a, a group of parents may decide to fight back in Manhattan is not going to be the same as they, as in Kentucky is not gonna be the same as in Seattle. So there's not a script to this. It's much more like what tools do they need? And then we work to provide those tools so that they can take that and, and, and you know, empower themselves and their group, which hopefully then gets, because it usually starts out with just a few parents and then they find each other and like-minded parents and the groups grow. And then they become much more of a force to be reckoned with as they, whether they're showing up at school board meetings or putting letters in the local newspaper or, you know, or, or creating an official parent group that has like a website and begins to like really like work together as a group. And the last thing I would say, Bethany, is that we, um, we do engage in litigation. So when we see cases that are egregious enough that we know that they've crossed the line and that they're violating um, the rights of the students, whether that's discrimination based on skin color, discrimination based on um, gender, or if it's um, viewpoint discrimination, where you know a student's allowed to, they can wear a t-shirt that says one thing, but they can't wear the other t-shirt. They can hang flags that say one thing, but they can't hang flags that say something else. Um, those are two big areas, and we um, we do have active litigation. I mean, you know, what we have we we have filed lawsuits, and I suspect what we will file more. Amazing. Um, so I think that we're going to let you go. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, can you, as like a final word before I send you off, can you just give us your website? Yes. So our website is defendinged.org. And people can come to our website. If they have a parent group that's already doing this work and they'd like us to add their group to our website, we can do that. Okay. And if they have concerns about something happening in their schools, they can reach out to us. And my email is Erica with a K, Erica at defendinged.org. So people can always reach out to me as well. Beautiful. And um, how can they find you on Twitter is my last question, both of Defending Ed and you. Um, so Parents Defending Education on Twitter is at Defending Ed. And I am E-Sanzi, so E-S-A-N-Z-I on Twitter. Amazing. Thank you so much, Eric. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I would love to thanks. have you on a future episode because we both uh, deeply adore you. Oh, thanks, guys. It's great to see you. And thank you so much for having me. And I apologize for all the dog barking. <laughs> My pleasure. Sorry, I'm glad it wasn't just mine. All right. Bye. 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 So that was um, an inspiring and somewhat dispiriting 
conversation. <laughs> how, are you, how are you feeling after that conversation, Andrew? Um, look, we got a we got a long battle ahead of us, but yeah. I'm very happy there are folks like Erica that are that are on the front lines fighting. Yeah, so, yeah, that's, 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 that's where we are. Yeah, and that's why we're here. I think we're good until you know two weeks from now. Um, in the meantime, if folks want to find us on Twitter, my name is Bethany Shondark, um, S-H-O-N-D-A-R-K. And I actually just started a political Instagram account because um, God knows people don't hear enough from me from a podcast and a Twitter account and whatever. So if you want to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, I'm Bethany Shondark on both. Um, and Andrew, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter, Andrew Gutman, last name G-U-T-M-A-N-N. I've got a substack, Andrew Gutman substack, uh, speakupforeducation.org. You can also find me and email me through that. Beautiful. Uh, so if folks, so we're, we're set on a, on a bi-weekly um, launch um, sort of publishing date. So if people want to be notified of when we launch new episodes, um, you can subscribe and please do on Apple podcasts or Spotify or pocket casts, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I think that this was a really good introduction to our next guest who we're, we have on our schedule next. Um, and I just want to tease it for a second. Um, her name is Jennifer Reisman. She is a friend of mine who I became friends with over the course of the last year. Uh, she is a parent here local to me in Montgomery County, Maryland. And she has had a like fair amount of success fighting back against our local school board. And, um, and I, I'm really excited to talk to her about um, how she's holding their feet to the fire and how other parents around the country can do the same. Because I think a lot of what's special about this podcast and what's important, especially in this moment about this podcast, is that we're giving parents and other sort of concerned citizens the tools to take back our schools the verb I, that's what we're trying to yeah. do here um so i think that she's going to have a lot of really important lessons for our listeners and for us about um how to hold these people to account um so until next week follow us on um substack and instagram and twitter and all of those things and uh please subscribe and if you could leave us a five-star review uh, we're a new podcast we're 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 scraping up and it'd be really nice if folks can find us so the best way to do that if is if you leave us five star reviews and don't leave us one star reviews because that's mean <laughs> all right so until next week andrew thank you so much for the chat and thank you to erica sanzi and uh all the all the folks at parents defending it i'm sure that we're going to have more conversations with more of their staffers because all of them have really interesting things to say and they're doing great work yeah yeah all right so until next time uh I, I feel like, so I used to host a podcast called Lady Brains with all my girlfriends. And so I'm like, every time like, and stay smart, don't stay smart. We'll have to figure out a new tagline, but okay. thanks for listening everybody. <laughs>